You guys all right? Awesome. Well, if it isn't one thing, it's another, right? It looks like there's haze in this room, and that's not because we're trying to be cool and shine lights through it. Um, it's because there's smoke outside. What a crazy, stinking year it's been. Um, if you're new to our church this morning, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and we just welcome you here this morning. Thank you for spending the Sunday with us and even braving the smoke and all the craziness that's outside to be here this morning. Uh, we've been in the study through the book of Matthew for the last year, almost. And a couple weeks ago when we were outside, was anybody at the, out, the outdoors gathering? We wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. And this morning, uh, we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 8. And I kid you not, like every single time, like we have some of these sermons planned out, like the text we're going to be in for months in advance, and uh, every single time we get to them, I just see how the Lord kind of allows it to be tied to something significant that's going on right now. And as I was reading through this portion of text, there's a lot we can pull from this, but I just specifically was thinking this week, like how do we help the helpless find hope? Uh, in, in the current kind of season we find our society in, it seems like there's a lot of helpless people, doesn't it? A lot of people that don't know where to turn, a lot of people that are looking for something that's firm and solid, something that's not changing. Maybe some of you in this room, anybody want a little consistency in their life at this point? 10% of you, that's awesome. I, I wouldn't mind a little. <laughs> Normally, we're preparing in the fall for all this fall-related stuff with school and church and all these things and to develop these rhythms, and I sort of feel like we're entering into a fall where we don't really get those rhythms. It's sort of like, okay, it's here, but not yet, and we're just continuing to wait. And anyhow, I was just thinking, like, I, I have friends scattered all over the West Coast. Um, I have some that are believers and some that aren't. I have some that are literally freaking out right now. I have friends who are pastors right now that don't know what the next step should be for them. I have friends who, have pa who are pastors in Southern California who thought they would be outdoors at this point, but the fires are preventing them from even doing that. And there's just all this uncertainty. And, and yet, this morning we're gathered under this banner of Jesus, not, I hope, not out of a religious obligation, but because we're proclaiming something about the Lord. We're proclaiming this morning that he's good and that he's faithful. We're, we're proclaiming this morning that we come before him to honor him and to worship him. But we're also proclaiming that he is the same yesterday and today and forever, amen? That he is the one unchanging thing in a world that will constantly be changing whether you like it or not. And this is why um, we, we see in scripture this reference to um, our, our hope being anchored in Jesus. And, and so this morning as we talk about this, my hope is that you'll kind of place yourself in the text as we're reading through it. I don't know if you're like me, but I ha I'm so visual, I have to see things. And so even as I'm studying for Sundays, I'm reading and rereading texts, and I'm just like trying to put myself in the position of the people that it's talking about and trying to imagine Jesus's interaction with these people and trying to feel it in my own heart as to what this would have been like. And sometimes that takes a little bit of contextualization to understand why Jesus did what he did and who Jesus was to the people that he came to on this earth at that time and who Jesus is to us and what lens they saw him through and what lens we're seeing him through today. And, and so as we approach this text this morning, I pray that you can kind of immerse yourself into it and actually see Jesus for who he is because I believe that there's people here this morning 
who find themselves, even as believers, at a fairly helpless place in their life this morning in desperate need of hope. And my prayer this morning is that you'd find that. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word. Lord, we thank you for even the privilege of gathering with your saints this morning. Jesus, in one room to honor and to worship you. And I just pray this morning that we would not take this for granted. And I'm asking Jesus that you show up in this room this morning, that you'd show up, Lord, in our city, that you make yourself known as you did 2,000 years ago in such an obvious way that people just could not deny who you were, what you were about, where you came, who sent you, what your purpose was, Jesus. And so I pray for those this morning that come here questioning and searching, seeking, trying to figure it out that somehow this morning your spirit would be so present here that you'd show up and you would be the one that would do the convincing, Lord. That is not my job. And I pray, Jesus, that you would solidify in some of the hearts in this room this morning that you are Jesus, the Son of the living God, the Messiah who paid for the sins of the world, that if we put our trust and our faith in you, we would be saved and our feet would be set stationary on a rock, Jesus, unshakable and unmovable. And so I pray this morning be this amazing morning for us to acknowledge you for who you are and worship you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. If you guys would turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Are you guys with me? You good? So if you guys were to go walk around the streets of Coeur d'Alene or maybe any metropolitan city, any place where you can find a bunch of people and begin asking people the question, um, what kind of people get into heaven? I'm not sure what kind of mixed responses you would get when you ask that question, but there's a few primary responses that I think you'd receive. One uh, would be maybe a handful of people that would tell you that everybody eventually gets into heaven. The sort of universalist approach that everybody makes it. There's an, one of the, the old church fathers from like 185 AD um, was of this opinion that everybody kind of gets there and even oddly enough believed that eventually the devil would be allowed back in. Um, two, uh, another perspective that you might get from people is that you might find some who would say, that all sincere people who follow their particular religion faithfully, whatever that is, um, would make it into heaven. Uh, Because in our day and age, sincerity in our beliefs is all that matters to so many people. It doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you're sincere about it, you'll find your way to heaven. The third way, the last group, would probably be those that would say that all good people would be allowed to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Anybody that does good, because many believe that God sort of maintains this tally sheet of sorts uh, on each one of us. And so if my good works outweigh or outnumber my bad works, then God will just have to let me in. It's not only fair. These are probably the the majority of the three responses that you'd get from people. But the Bible actually teaches that that there are going to be some very surprised people on Judgment Day. People who were convinced that they had this right into heaven. Um, and they found themselves extremely disappointed when they didn't make it. And then there's others who knew that they had no right to claim God's grace and enter heaven, but threw themselves totally and completely on the goodness and the mercy of God and are going to be wonderfully surprised. And this is what Jesus is teaching as we get into Matthew chapter 8 here, verses 1 through 13. This morning, we're actually going to look at an amazing lesson that Jesus teaches us about the kind of people Jesus stops to help 
and who he grants eternity in heaven to. And, and Jesus takes the time to, to heal a leper, to, to, to heal um, the, the servant of a Roman soldier. And the lesson that Jesus is teaching us would have stunned the people of his day. Like, what's happening? We read the Bible. Oftentimes, we'll read even uh, a story like this of healing, and we just kind of like read it and then move on because we've read it before, because it just seems like fiction to us. But you have to understand that what Jesus is doing was radically countercultural. Like, people did not know what to do with what Jesus was doing here in this text. Um, and I think this morning that as we read into this, that it may actually surprise you a little bit as well. There's this word that we find at the end of the passage that we're studying this morning. If you look in chapter 8, verse 13, it says, have believed, this phrase, have believed. And this word believed, as used in Matthew eight thirteen, is from this Greek word, pisteo. And I'm not trying to act all smart and stuff by using a Greek word, but I want you to understand the difference between this word believe that's used here and believe as it's used elsewhere because it, it means to believe, to trust, or to have confidence in. And so interestingly enough, uh, no New Testament writer uses uh, this word more than John. So in John's gospel account, you find this word in that form, pasteo, used like over a hundred times. And so when John uses this word, he means to trust that Jesus, the Son of God, is sufficient to deliver from sin and give the gift of eternal life. When he says believe, that's all that's tangled up in that. That's what he means. And, and, but then there's also this other form of believe, this noun version of the form believe, which is this word pistis. And John actually never, some of you think that's funny, huh, pistis. Uh, but John actually never uses the noun form of the word. He only uses this word pisteo. Uh, because the pisteo word means more than just merely acknowledging something is true or, or making some sort of mental agreement to a concept. So as a verb, the, the word believe means an actual trusting within a personal relationship to the point of confidence and action based off of the relationship that you have with that person. It would probably be best to think of it within like a relational covenant. It's an agreement that's made with the Lord. And so trusting somebody enough to do what they say because you have faith in who they are, which is different than just being committed to something. It's, it's two totally different words. In our English vocabulary, we often interchange the word faith with belief, but they're actually totally different words. So I can have faith that if I jump off this stage this morning, uh, my wife's going to try to do her best to catch me. Like, I can have faith that she's going to do that. She probably would try her best, but I'd probably smash her. But it doesn't mean that I actually believe in my wife. It actually means I have faith that she'll try to catch me, but not necessarily that I have a belief in her. So uh, unlike today, like, faith and belief um, w was not an issue of concern at the time that the scriptures were being written. They weren't trying to mix up what these two words were. Today, we have plenty of people that are atheists, people that are agnostics, who don't really believe anything supernaturally, but this was not the case back then. Uh, so virtually everyone in Jesus' time believed in supernatural beings and worshiped their little G gods. They all had gods that they worshiped. They understood what that mean. And so when you understand this word pistis as meaning a vow to faithfulness or a, a vow to covenant loyalty, 
you can see it in that culture, like how important that was. So to claim Jesus as your Lord and King to the exclusion of all other little g gods was a change in allegiance from little g gods to one true God, the God of Israel, and to pledge allegiance to his anointed King Jesus and to his coming kingdom. So it was to forsake all else to trust him. So when they say believe, it wasn't just, I believe in a little g God. It was not the same thing, although the culture would have understood this word belief. So when he uses this word pisteo, he says, no, 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 when you say you believe, it's all-encompassing. You actually believe in one God that only come, you can only get to through Jesus Christ, his son, that he sent to die on behalf of the sins of the world and rose again. So that this verb form of the word was used by Matthew 10 times, it was used by Mark 10 times, and it was used by Luke 9 times. And so in Matthew 8, 13, uh, it says that this centurion believed and was certain that, that Jesus could heal his servant, and Jesus rewarded him according to his faith what he believed, pisteo, this word. Uh, over the last few months, as we studied through Matthew chapters five through seven, we studied like the greatest sermon Jesus ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And two weeks ago, as we wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount, the last words of the sermon contrast this person who builds their house on a rock, which we talked about at the outdoor service, and the person who builds their house on the sand. Like one person hears God's word and they actually obey it, and the other person hears God's word and does not obey it. And the man who builds on the rock will stand, but the one who builds on the house will fall. And so it goes on to say, or the builds on the sand will fall. And so he goes on to say that the people are astonished after this by Jesus' teaching. If you read at the end of uh, chapter uh, 7 there, that they were astonished by Jesus' teaching because why? Because Jesus did not teach like the other religious instructors. He didn't teach like their scribes. There was something different about Jesus. And this is the key to understanding the way that Jesus taught and why people came to him uh, as Jesus taught, because Jesus taught with authority, something that nobody else had. He, He wasn't just this good teacher that was asking people to do really hard things, like come follow after me and do it because I say so. He was God in the flesh asking people to follow him, trusting that as God, he would actually assist them in following him. Something different about that. It wasn't just come follow me, it's follow me because I'm actually God in the flesh. Like you can actually trust me and follow me and I will lead you properly because I am the one true God. And so in Matthew 8 verses, uh, through Matthew uh, chapter 9, verse 38, there's sort of this pattern that Matthew starts to put together. So Matthew's not teaching chronologically. I know this is a lot of setup for this text, but Matthew's not necessarily teaching chronologically through this. He's teaching uh, sort of topically. And so Matthew, he sort of alternates between these miracle stories and then these teachings on discipleship. And the first miracle that Matthew records shocks people. Like it's astounding to them. Not, not only had they never heard anything like this, they had also never seen anything like what Jesus is doing. 
Jesus will honor a person's faith, even the faith of those that are undesirable, which we'll see in this text. And so I sort of want to answer a question this morning. I think it's relevant even at our time in history for this question to be asked today, because many people are scrambling trying to figure out and make sense of the times that we're living in, and many are feeling helpless. And so the answer to the question that, that, that I want to ask this morning is found in Matthew 8, verses 1 through 13, and how Jesus responds to a couple very different people in this passage. How can the helpless find hope? So look at uh, Matthew 8, verses 1 through 4. It's going to be on the screens. If you want to turn there, turn there. You can say word when you get there. I want you to follow along with, follow along with me, and I want you to put yourself in the story as we read this. When Jesus came down from the mountain, so Jesus just gets done preaching this, this massive sermon, this critical sermon, and he comes down off the mountain, and large crowds begin to follow him. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand, and he touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priests and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So Matthew chapter 8 actually picks up where Matthew chapter 4 sort of left off with, and then the Sermon on the Mount was kind of in parentheses in the middle there, this kind of major teaching parentheses, this kind of pause, and then he goes into the Sermon on the Mount, and now he's sort of picking back up. But Matthew's building this defense. He's been working this since the beginning of the book, where he's trying to convince people, the Jews, that Jesus was the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. So if you remember from the beginning of Matthew, how does the book of Matthew open? Does anybody remember chapter one? What's going on? There's a genealogy, right? So this is where he came from, and then it's tracing it back. So he's building this sort of defense. And then Matthew pulls in prophecies of his birth from the Old Testament later in chapter one, and then in chapter three, uh, Jesus is, it says he's divinely qualified by, the God, by God the Father. When God says at his baptism, he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then there's Jesus' victory over Satan's temptation in chapter 4. And then there's this break, the Sermon on the Mount of sorts in 5 through 7. And now Jesus is supernaturally qualified by these miracles that he's doing. Matthew's building a case to convince the Jews that he's not just some great prophet. He is not just some guy that taught well and told people to follow him. He's the king of kings and the Lord of. He is the Messiah that came to save the world. And so Jesus comes down from the mountain with large crowds following him. And I want you to notice this this morning, that the crowds aren't what Jesus was interested in. The crowds follow him. but Jesus wasn't a hype man trying to build big crowds. That was not ever his motive. Jesus, like we see in this text, was concerned with the one. And in this case, the one was this man with leprosy, a man with probably the worst condition that a person could have during Jesus' time. There's hardly anyone that would have been more undesirable in society than this leper. Leprosy was the worst disease or illness that somebody could have during Jesus' day. In the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, 
There are these laws dedicated to how they were supposed to deal with the lepers. Um, Few diseases were more feared in the ancient world, both in terms of illness and in terms of how people would respond to those things, than leprosy. The, The Jews despised anyone with this disease and viewed that person who had that disease as a person that was cursed. And so it was rare to ever see anybody healed of this disease. And so many believed that it was easier to be raised from the dead than it was to be healed of leprosy in their culture. And anybody with leprosy was considered unclean. They were required, as they went out into town, to literally say, unclean, unclean, like announce it to everybody so everybody knew they had it. It's sort of like COVID today, right? Like, you got to tell us, man, we need some contract tracing going on because we don't want to get what you have. That thing's gnarly. What they also believed about lepers was that they got it from somewhere. It was a result of something bad that they did. So either you sinned or your parents sinned, but you inherited this thing somewhere along the way. God's judgment was upon you because this leprosy that was on your body. And so anybody with leprosy was declared unclean. So people had to be informed and warned that people had this disease. And so lepers were forbidden from living in any normal community. They couldn't be touched by anyone. I don't know if any of you have ever been to a leper colony. Anybody in here ever been to one? It's it's the most heartbreaking experience, honestly. Walking into a leper colony and seeing a group of people that have been outcast from society that nobody wants anything to do with. And then to go in there as a believer and they're saying like, just go lay hands on them and pray for them. Go give that person a hug. It's like transformative because nobody does that. They just push them out. So these lepers did not live like everybody else. And in fact, in the Old Testament law, uh, it it commanded that a Jew was not to come any closer than, um, ironically enough, six feet from a leper. Uh, Or if the wind was blowing, the limit was 150 feet. This was a serious issue in Jesus' day. You cannot read this passage and just blow through it and go on to the next one. You have to see what Jesus is doing. This disease of leprosy, symbolically, was actually a picture of sin. So over 40 times in Scripture, it talks about this disease of leprosy. And so like leprosy, sin infects us. It spreads throughout our whole body. It's ugly, it's corrupting, it's contaminating, it's alienating. It's virtually incurable apart from some sort of divine intervention or healing. Sin takes us out. And so oftentimes leprosy is symbolic of sin. And so this act of this leper coming, not just coming to Jesus, what's he doing? He's bowing down before Jesus. It would have shocked anybody that witnessed this act happening. Like what in the world is this guy doing? And so this this leper sort of sets aside all social boundaries and all laws that were in place, and he comes right up to Jesus. He kneels before him, and he says this. He says, Lord, Lord, capital L, Lord, acknowledging this guy might be more than just some good prophet, that there's an authority, there's something in him. He's something more to him than just a good man telling people to do good things. He says, Lord, if you're willing You can make me clean. So a couple things jump out at you when you first read this. First, this man comes to Jesus in confidence, but then he also comes in reverence and he comes in humility, acknowledging Jesus as God. 
and he bows before him. This was like a sign of worship. It was a sign of reverence. And so this leper is acknowledging something here. And the leper comes to the right person. He responds in the right way. And he says the right thing. By calling Jesus Lord, he's, the, the, this man confesses more than he even understands. Because he doesn't even know who Jesus actually is. But he's confessing more than what his mind even knows. And it's possible that he maybe sees Jesus as God but he at least knows that it's the God that's working through Jesus. There's something special about him. And so the statement, if you are willing, that he uses, it it expresses humility. It reveals that the, the issue is not, can he do it? But the issue was, will he want to? Not can he, he's able. Will he want to? He says, you can make me clean. These are words of faith. These are words of confidence in the power that Jesus was operating, this authority that Matthew continues to talk about. And so he has faith that Jesus can do it, but the only question for the leper is what? Will he? I trust he can, but will he? Many of you are asking that question right now in your life. I know he can. Will he? Will he? And do you have the faith to approach him even if you're not sure what the outcome is? Do you believe that he can? And then you trust that he will if it's in his will. And so Jesus does the, the unexpected as often as he can. I love this about Jesus. And so what's Jesus do? He reaches out his hand and he touches this man. For the crowd gathered around here would have been like, oh no, this dude is loco. You know, this guy's crazy. Like the crowd would have been shocked. Like it was totally unnecessary for Jesus to touch him. As we're going to see in the next event that comes after this with the centurion, did Jesus need to touch him to be healed? He can remotely heal, can't he? Jesus decided to touch him because of the statement that it made to everybody else. You won't touch him, I will. Nobody else can help him, I can't, is the statement that Jesus is making. And and so what Jesus touches, and take this for yourself this morning, what Jesus touches immediately becomes clean. Immediately. Like Jesus isn't contaminated by the man, but, but he actually imparts cleansing into the man. Like he's not ruined by it, he actually changes the man. And so in faith, this leper defies all Old Testament law, and Jesus transcends all the Old Testament law, and, and this healing is instantaneous. And so immediately, his leprosy is gone. And so the undesirable was made whole. What an amazing work that Jesus just did. Those that nobody wanted anything to do with, Jesus just gave purpose and value to. And then Jesus commands the healed man. He says to not tell anyone and go show himself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And so it seems just kind of odd. Like why would Jesus do this and then ask the guy to stay silent? Kind of surprising. But I, I think that, that Jesus didn't want to be treated as a mere, mir- a mere miracle worker. Like that just wasn't the extent of who he was. Jesus was more than that. Jesus wasn't there to just feed all the expectations of the crowd who wanted some sort of political and material Messiah. He wasn't there just to give them all all the things that they wanted. 
And it's kind of interesting, though, if you look in the book of Mark, as Mark recounts the same story in 145, um, the, the man actually disobeys Jesus, it says. He goes on from here. He disobeys Jesus, and he begins to proclaim it widely and spread the news when he was told not to. And then it says, because of this, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. That Jesus was like barred from going into towns because now he's messing with Jewish law. And so one of the things that I I want to clarify is that Jesus was not encouraging people to be a silent witness. Like for Jesus, there was a right people and a right procedure. It had to happen a right way. And so Jesus, um, like in in the Levitical law, it was said that the, the healed leper will give a witness when he appears before the priest in Jerusalem to prove that he had been healed. So that was part of the whole process with identifying a leper and how a leper goes about getting healed. And if the leper actually is healed, then the leper has to go back to the priest as a witness before the priest in Jerusalem to prove that he was actually healed. And so the leper's healing would have been this testimony to the priests. And it would be used to to affirm that, that, that one who has authority over disease and over sickness is actually in their midst, that there's something about this man. And so how they respond is totally up to them. But one thing was really clear. Jesus will honor the man's faith, even the faith of the most undesirable. Jesus honors it. Jesus cares about individuals. Jesus cares about those that society has deemed undesirable. And the miracle is that when Jesus touches the unclean, they become clean. And this is a perfect example of when Jesus said back in Matthew 5 that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill the law. He didn't come to wipe it away. He came to fulfill it. And this is honestly why it's so important for you and I to read the Bible in its totality and see where Jesus begins to connect the dots because what Jesus is doing here is in direct response to how the Old Testament told them to respond to the lepers and Jesus is fulfilling it in a whole new way and he's saying, go back and tell the priest. Don't tell anybody else, go tell the priest. What a shock for the priest to be like, that's the dude that was a leper. Like now he's, who did this to you? Uh, That guy, Jesus. You know what I mean? Like the witness was now to the priests. And, and hundreds, of, hundreds of years prior to this, God gave this law to the Jews, that they were to abide by it. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and it's moments like this where you literally watch Jesus fulfill the law before your eyes. He works miracles in accordance with what the law said in hopes that the Jews could put the pieces together. You'd think, you'd go, oh, wow, that's kind of ironic. Like, the Old Testament law says, the Levitical law says this, and this is the way Jesus handled that. The heartbreaking part is the Jews to this day are still missing it. Haven't connected the dots. The even harder part is that people that grew up in church, like some of us in this room, still haven't connected the dots, and we know what happens on the other side of the cross. And say we believe what happens on the other side of the cross. And it's interesting that the most undesirable, the outcasts, are the ones who acknowledge this act, but not the religious. So interesting. Why? Because the religious are so caught up in trying to do their religion and fulfill all the legal requirements of the law themselves that they can't see that Jesus was actually the fulfillment of the law himself. They missed it. So a couple quick highlights from this section that I don't want you to miss. 
Jesus cares about individuals. Jesus cares about the people that society deems undesirable. When Jesus touches the unclean, they immediately become clean. And four, that Jesus upheld and honored the teachings of the law. Like Jesus fulfilled them. So the the first statement that I made with regards to um, how can we help the helpless find hope, it's first, trust Jesus to meet your needs. The second is turn to Jesus when you need help, trust Jesus to meet your needs. Have faith. Turn to Jesus when you need help. In Matthew 8, 5 through 9, he says this. And when, Je- when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. And so the scene here, are you guys still with me? We good? All right. So the scene here sort of shifts. And now you're at the, in the city on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum. And this was a really important city in Jesus' day. Jesus' ministry based out of here. And, and Peter lived here. There, there was also this delegation of Roman troops that lived within this city. And, and these Roman troops existed to make sure that Caesar is being honored, that the law is being followed, the Roman law. And so you literally had Roman troops enfor- enforcing Roman law in Jewish territory. Pretty odd setup. And so these troops were dedicated to serving Caesar and serving the Roman Empire. And and the troops were led by a centurion. And so the the centurion would be a man that was responsible for the discipline and the deployment of a hundred soldiers, hence the name, the word centurion. And so the centurion also would have been a Gentile or a non-Jew. And so as this Gentile, he would have been despised by the Jewish people. I mean, this guy's got a rough job. If you're a police officer and you're asked to enforce masks, imagine being, you know, this Roman centurion being asked to enforce Roman law in Jewish territory. Like, what a brutal task that this guy's been given. The Jews hated them. And so once again, you you see Jesus treating the unlikely with honor, those that the rest of society didn't. And so Jesus makes this pretty massive statement here about those that he welcomes into his kingdom. Like it's always those whom everybody else views as unworthy that God welcomes when they approach him in faith. And so entering Capernaum, Jesus is approached by this Roman centurion. And just like the leper, he comes to Jesus in humility and he pleads with Jesus and he addresses Jesus as Lord, just like the leper did, and then lays the situation out before Jesus. His servant is lying at home paralyzed, and he's being tormented, and Jesus responds to him with, I will come and heal him. Pretty simple. God is always honored by those who trust him and have faith in him. And so faith in God is so central. It's so essential. But in this situation, there's a way bigger, greater faith that's present, and it's in, of all people, this Gentile Roman centurion. Of all people to have this faith, this guy would be the last of them. And then the centurion's response is really amazing. Like nobody could have expected this. He says, Lord, 
I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. And honestly, this says so much about what the centurion believed with regards to spiritual authority, this authority that we talked about, the authority that he believed in that Jesus had. And so he again refers to Jesus as Lord and shows so much humility and respect for Jesus, and he acknowledges first his unworthiness, that Jesus should not even enter into his home. And there's a couple things that he's, statements he's kind of making in this reference here. Um, one, the fact that Jesus uh, going into his home, like Jesus would not enter his home as a Jew because he would have been going into an unclean home. It just would not have happened for Jesus. But the second thing, the bigger thing that he's acknowledging um, is his own sinfulness. That, that I'm not worthy of you, Lord, coming under my roof. And this is in light of who he believes that Jesus is. He believes there's something more to this man. I mean, look at the statement he makes. Only say the word and my servant will be cured. So what do you have to believe about somebody in order to say something like that? What, do you have to, what did he have to believe about Jesus in order to make a confident statement like that? He had to have faith. He had to have confidence that Jesus actually could do it. And so understand that at this point, Jesus has never healed in this way before. Like, why would the centurion think that Jesus could perform such a thing and that if he could, he would do it with the people that the Jews hated the most? Why? And I think the answer is found in the insight that he goes on to share about authority. That, that just, he goes on, that just as he has authority over men to tell them to go and to come and to do this, he believes that Jesus has the same authority over disease and sick, sickness, that you can tell it to go and come. That you're that powerful, Jesus. That he, he goes on to say that his men are under his authority, but Jesus is under whose authority? He's under God's authority, and he exercises authority from God. And so when Jesus spoke, God spoke. I mean, get that. It wasn't just Jesus speaking, it was God. When Jesus acted, it was literally God acting. Like, God can do anything, any, even heal from a distance. God isn't bound by space or distance. And the same is true for his son, Jesus. He can do all that God did. And I love the fact that Jesus receives the unworthy, that Jesus welcomes the Jews and Gentiles who have faith in him, and, and that as God's son, Jesus has this authority and the power of God. And then the third way that the helpless find hope, and this will be the last one, is that they accept Jesus, Jesus' help, to meet their need. He goes on to say this in verse 10. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Get that. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. So when Jesus heard the centurion's faith, it says he marveled at it. Jesus was amazed by the faith that this man had. And then Jesus turns to those following him, and he makes a teachable moment out of what this Roman centurion just said. So he says, truly I say to you, I've not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Like, how would you feel if you were one of Jesus' disciples right now? 
dang, you know, like, <laughs> he, just, he just destroyed you guys. <laughs> the commentator uh, D.A. Carson said this about this statement. The greatness of his faith did not rest in the mere fact that he believed Jesus could heal from a distance, but in the degree to which he had penetrated the secret of Jesus' authority. This Gentile penetrated more deeply into the nature of Jesus' person and authority than any Jew of his time. That's so good. What was the most amazing part of the centurion's response? It was not that Jesus could heal. It was the recognition of who Jesus was and the authority that Jesus carried. It would have made sense for a Jewish or Hebrew person to have had faith in God like this, but not a Gentile. The the Jews had the scriptures and the writings of the prophets. They had the promises of this coming Messiah that were given from Genesis all the way to Malachi. The Jews had all of this. Yet in this moment, the faith that Jesus marveled at and used as a teaching point to his disciples was from a person that the rest of Israel would have considered uh, unworthy. But not Jesus. Jews in Jesus' day may have thought that the grace of God might reach out and touch one leper, maybe even touch one Gentile, they would have assumed. But if you remember back in in the book of Jonah, there's this reminder in Jonah. He says, you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. But it was virtually inconceivable to a first century Jew that God would allow his kingdom to be flooded by the undesirable and the unworthy. It just would not have made sense. The thought of Gentiles, the the people that the Jews referred to as dogs, these being the ones that rushed into God's kingdom was unimaginable for them, but not for Jesus. And so in verse 11 and 12, Jesus drops this bombshell he, he turns the, this worldview of the people on its head and he reminds them, and I think he reminds us today, that many will be surprised as to who gets in and who's left out of the kingdom of God. You will be so surprised that the faith of the unexpected is honored as well, as Jesus did in these two instances. And Jesus uses the, the centurion's faith as this opportunity to teach a really important truth, a truth that needed to be heard just as much in the first century as it needs to be heard today in the 21st century. These, these are words that should cause you to look up and take notice, honestly. They should shock you a little bit. Many will come, he says, that the kingdom of heaven will not be sparsely populated, only a handful, but many will find their eternal home there. Many will come. But the question that I think we might ask is, where will they come from? Will they only be Jews? And Jesus' words and his answer to this question are crazy. He says, they will come from the east, and they'll come from the west. And they will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So this phrase, from the east and the west, meaning outside of the borders of the nation of Israel, that the Gentiles will come. And this, the, the, these would have been, again, the Gentiles, the, the, the hated pagans, the, the ones that oppressed the Jews. And, and the fact that they would come and re- recline at the Messiah's table and find their place in his kingdom is absolutely shocking for the Jews. And this whole idea that the Gentiles would share in the blessings of the Messiah's kingdom would have been so difficult for them to bite off. 
But Jesus says things like this in John 10. But I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, and then there will be one flock, one shepherd. And so Jesus says people will come from everywhere, from every direction, that they'll recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of the Jewish faith in the kingdom of heaven. And what is the gist of all that Jesus is saying here? That the key to entrance into the kingdom is not your genealogy. The key to getting into the kingdom is not your national citizenship. Like, get over it. It's not your race. God doesn't show favoritism. But Acts 10 says, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does righteousness is acceptable to all. And so this whole issue of who gets into the kingdom is really an internal matter, right? It's, it's a matter of the heart. Like God doesn't judge according to the face or, or to one's status in society. He looks within and examines the condition of your heart. Like who do you trust? Who is your faith in? And the blessings of the gospel and the kingdom of heaven are actually appropriated by our faith. Like you want to partake? Then have faith in Jesus. The pistios. Believe, not that he's just a good guy that you follow, but he's actually the son of the living God that was slain for mankind so that we could be forgiven of our sins, that we could walk in the newness of life because of what Jesus did for us. And Paul says this in Galatians, and I'll ask the worship team to come up. He says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. It is wonderful to realize that many will be surprised by joy when it comes to entering the kingdom. Surprised that the simple condition is faith and faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith and faith alone. People have all these crazy ideas about who will get into God's kingdom and what's required of them in order to do that. And in first century Israel, it was thought that by many that just by being a Hebrew, just by being a descendant of the patriarchs, it would be enough. But Jesus says, that's not so. They'll come from the east, and they'll come from the west, and they'll get a place at the table. And that those who respond to him in repentance, with faith, will actually discover that they're welcome no matter what their ethnicity, their race social background, national background, sexual background, like you come in repentance by faith to Jesus and Jesus alone. And that should be really good news for us. In contrast, Jesus ends with this. He says, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out in the outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this sounds so harsh, because it is. But who's Jesus talking about when he mentions the sons of the kingdom? He's talking about the Jews. The ones who, by ancestry, were sure that they'd make it into heaven. But yet, some will painfully discover that they weren't welcome. Jesus says in spite of their privileged status, 
He says, some will be thrown into outer darkness, denied entrance into the kingdom of God. And these were the ones that would have said, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Look at my parents. Look at where I came from, my lineage. Look at my background. Like, I've done all the right things. I've been part of a Christian family. Like, I've attended. Like, I've done all the good things that I need to do in order to get into heaven. And Jesus is making the statement that, man, it's those that think that they've done all the right things and are trusting on their right things and their own righteousness to get into heaven that actually will not make it. And that's why for you and I, it is about your faith in Jesus, trusting that he's the only one that can make up the righteousness deficit that exists in your heart. Only him. You can't do it on your own. And I love that Jesus honors the faith of the unworthy because I'm one of them. I love it that he honors the faith of the unlikely because I'm one. I love it that he honors the faith of the unclean because I'm one. And it's the unlikely, the unworthy, and the unclean that come before Jesus and realize they don't have much to offer, but they know that Jesus can make up the deficit. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus to make up the deficit in your life, he's calling your name. And it will not be because you attended church, because you grew up in a Christian home, because you even got dunked in some water, or, or you took communion one time, or what, go down the list. It will not be because of your religious acts and the things that you've done that you will be granted entrance into the kingdom of God, ultimately into heaven. It will come by your faith in Jesus and not denying his authority, his power, his Godship. so crazy to me that in this passage um, Jesus heals this centurion's servant from a distance. Because <laughs> he asked him to come to his house and Jesus says I'll come and I'll heal him. And then uh, at the end there Jesus says go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. The servant was healed at that very moment and then he leaves and he's literally on his way home knowing that God's already done the work that he promised him he'll do, but we'll be waiting for him at home once he gets there. What an awesome thing. And I want to encourage you today with just three things. Jesus always honors faith. The Bible talks about even the faith of a mustard seed can move a mountain. He always honors faith. And getting into God's kingdom is a matter of faith, not how you grew up or what you were raised in or the stuff that you've done. And the third thing that I just boggles my mind is the fact that judgment day is going to be surprising for all of us. Because the least likely people are going to be the ones that were like, what? <laughs> you know what that dude did? <laughs> that dude called upon the name of Jesus to atone for his sins and save him. And he walked in the newness of life that God granted him through his son, Jesus. So many of us in this room this morning claim to be Christians and we're confident of where we're going when we die. But I want you to be careful this morning to understand 
that your faith has to be your own. It has to. Your wife can't make up the deficit for you. Your husband can't make up the deficit for you. Your parents can't make up the deficit for you. It has to be your faith. And your faith has to be placed in the right place with the right person. And it's only with Jesus. Would you stand with me? As we close this morning, my prayer is that you would acknowledge that Jesus is who he said he is. And some of you need that reminder this morning. Some of you have never put your faith in Christ before. Do you believe that he's not just a prophet and a good man that walked the earth, but that he is the only way to the only God? Do you believe that this morning? The Bible says, if you believe that, you believe that he died for your sins and that he rose again, that you, you'll be saved. So I'm not looking for the most righteous people in the room that have done all the right things and grown up in all the right circles. God's looking for those that are willing to have faith in him, to make up the deficit, to walk forward in newness of life and obedience to him, to change your ways, repent, turn, and follow Jesus with your life. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for your church. God, as I stand up here this morning, I realize that there's some in this room that are hurting. I know there's some that probably walked into this room this morning feeling hopeless in regards to one area of their life or the other. Maybe hopeless that their marriage will ever work out. Hopeless that a relationship will ever work out. Hopeless that they'll ever figure things out themselves. Some people in this room are convinced that they're unworthy, that they're screw-ups, that there's no way the God of the universe would ever grant them forgiveness because of all that they've done. And yet, Jesus, the only thing that brings us here this morning is knowing that by grace, you've made up for it all. And so I pray for your church this morning that she be encouraged, that she be mobilized, that she be equipped, that you'd fill your church with your spirit, God, that as we leave these four walls, Lord, we know that we leave here walking in the authority that was put upon Jesus, that you say it's been given to us. And how amazing is that, that we don't leave here as just plain Jane humans. We actually leave here as supernatural, spirit-empowered, grace-filled, love-drenched people that can't deny the power and the goodness of the Most High God. And so I pray that this afternoon that would just reverberate in our minds and in our hearts. Jesus, we need you. We want to walk with you. We need to be empowered by you. And I pray, Jesus, by your spirit that you would do that work in your church as they go today. In your name we pray. Amen.